So for those of us who haven't built a billion dollar business, and there's only two people in here who have, and that's Sir Michael, I believe, and, and David, we should all listen up and take note from someone who has. So without further ado, give you David Cleveland. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Crikey. Um, what, do, what do I do next? Um, let's, uh, let's talk about how to, how to build a billion dollar company. Um, and as Shai said, you're sitting in one of the few places on the planet um, that's really got the right environment to do this. Um, but I, I want to walk through a number of ways of thinking about the problem of how do you build a billion dollar business. And I want to start by being rather sober about things, because there's a thing called selection bias. And selection bias is the thing that uh, means that you see the thing that succeeded. If we took uh, 1,024 people in a room, and you paired them up, and you gave them a coin to toss, and the winner of that each pair would then go forward, the others would get eliminated, you get 1,024, you get 512 winners, you get 256, 128, and in the end there would be one who managed to call the, he the heads or tails on the coin correctly at every single stage. And you would say they were fantastically lucky. But the way the system was set up was that there was going to be one winner. The point is that you don't see... The, 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 the point is, firstly, the system itself may generate winners, and some of that may just be down to luck. And I speak as somebody who has been very lucky. Secondly, you only see the guys who are successful who have been lucky. So be very careful when you listen to people like me, because I may just have called the heads or tails right a few times. Okay? And I'll talk a little bit about how close I've come to disaster, at least twice, least twice come very close to bankruptcy in, in, um, in what I've done. And if, I if, if that event had occurred once or twice, well, it wouldn't have happened the second time, it, if it happened once, I wouldn't be here and Darren wouldn't be saying such nice things about me. So let's, uh, let's just be careful about this. Silicon Valley, 1938. This is Silicon Valley. That is what it looks like. Or that's what it looked like in 1938. That's Bill Hewlett's living quarters. Um, the difference between what you can see now in this lovely museum and what Bill Hewitt, Hewitt actually had to put, Hewlett had to put up with, was there is a lavatory in there. He didn't have a lavatory. That's how Hewlett-Packard started, and that's how Silicon Valley started. Now, one of the things that I find difficult when I'm talking to reporters, or indeed quite a lot of people, is that they imagine somehow these things have always pre-existed, and they've always been big, and they've always been glamorous. No, they haven't. They've been a shack with no toilet facilities. Okay? So I'm a great believer in starting small. I'll talk a bit more about that. But... Cambridge itself, as Shai was saying, has been a long time in the making just in the same way that Silicon Valley was a long time in the making. Silicon Valley from 1938 to the end of the century, 62 years, add on 14, you get to 76. We're about 50 years through. 
which in exponential terms means we're chasing Silicon Valley at the moment, but 25 years could make a very big difference to this place. There are 900,000 people within 45 minutes driving time of Cambridge. Just because Cambridge looks like a small city, don't be misled. Cambridge is actually, Cambridge commercial property last year was 20 or 30% more commercial property was exchanged in Cambridge than in Leeds. Cambridge is about as big as Bristol, or maybe a little bit bigger. Okay? So just understand that one of the other backgrounds of this is you may look out there at the lovely um, Market Square and think that Cambridge is actually very small. Cambridge is actually a pretty big place. And connect it down to London, and Cambridge becomes something really quite special indeed. Cambridge Ideas Change the World is the, um, is the tagline for Cambridge Network. Um, here's EDSAC, which uh, is the first programmable computer. It spawns ARM. ARM spawns Raspberry Pi. I'll talk a little bit more about that process later. Crick and Watson do DNA here. As a result, we have Selexa doing DNA sequencing, and we have other things like Cambridge Antibody Technology. And I'll talk about that one, Cambridge Antibody Technology, in a second. The point is that where these small things start, where you build the garage really matters, really, really matters. Because if DNA had not been discovered a few hundred yards away from here, we would not have what will be 17,000 people working on the biomedical campus down at Annbrooks. 17,000 people. It's the biggest concentration of biomedical in Europe. Why is Cambridge a low-risk place to do high-risk things, as Andy Richards says? Well, it's because, as, as Shai said, you've got all these different entities. You've got multinational corporations. You've got um, world's top university, research labs, technical consultancies, homegrown uh, companies, multinationals, as I said before, angel and VC money, and most important, I think, things like this, networking and mentoring organizations. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about how that stuff works, because the networks actually really underpin everything that goes on in Cambridge. And I'm going to give you some examples of that. But just before I do, just before I do, I want to talk about something which David Connell, who's uh, at the judge, talks about, about hard starting or soft starting. My first business was analysis. It was a consultancy company. It was a soft start in David Connell's words. By soft start, he means this green line here. You don't actually borrow very much money, or if you do, it's a little bit of debt, and you grow, and you grow like that. The way to do this, if you're going to be on the, on the, on the internet, if you're going to do some web stuff, and you think you've got a really big company that's going to grow very fast, well, you do it like this. And the promise is that by having a hard start, you have lots of money being spent, you'll end up by growing faster and growing bigger. Maybe. Maybe. It works because you've seen the guys who won the coin toss. Those are the guys who took a lot of money and grew very fast. Just remember, there were a lot of them who took a lot of money and didn't grow very fast. So watch out for selection bias. Let me now do a different kind of selection bias. I'm going to show you the ones that succeeded with soft starts. So soft starts in Cambridge. Aveva. 
which span out of the CAD centre. Autonomy, which never took any VC money in, at least until it needed to go to IPO. I am one of the few people who can honestly say, when Mike Lynch came to me to, uh, for me to put money into his company, I refused. But that was for a digital signal processing-based chip that uh, did music synthesis, and I worked out that the market wasn't big enough. Mike Lynch still got two number one hits out of that, but that's another matter. Um, Cambridge Antibody Technology. The VCs refused to fund CAT, right? So it had to find a way through that hobbling along until it got to sufficient scale that it could then attract some serious funding. Uh, Acorn. Acorn produced ARM. When Acorn, Acorn ran in, you, you guys won't know this, but Acorn did a spectacular rise, complete crash. Um, Herman and Andy rescued it, in effect, by Herman talking to a chap called El Serena Piol at uh, Olivetti. Olivetti then started up the Olivetti Labs. In the meantime, in the background, they took this idea for a re reduced instruction set computing platform, and ARM was born out of that. Cambridge Consultants, one of the technology consultants around here, and there are several, I could give other examples, but I'll just give Cambridge Consultants. Cambridge Consultants has produced three, CSR, Domino, and Tsar, all of which had teams nurtured inside, CS, uh, inside Cambridge Consultants before they were spun out. All of them were soft starts. And the one that I'll just point to that I was involved in is analysis, because that was my consultancy company. We developed a whole series of web systems. And so when I had the conversation with Jonathan, which I'll talk to you about in a second, as a result of that, we were able to transfer a whole load of technical know-how over to Abcam, which enabled Abcam then to build itself as a web-based company more quickly, more effectively than, than it would have otherwise have done. All of those are soft starts. They are not, I am a superhero going to get a shed load of VC money and I'm going to go charging off into the market. They have certain characteristics. They have an idea about product and they're probably selling some. They have a good network of support. They, they've been nurtured themselves as teams inside other organizations or they can draw on those organizations' resources. That's very much the way in which we, things have been done in Cambridge. And when you add up the, the numbers there, that's about half the companies in Cambridge that have got to a billion. So maybe it's not so much selection bias. Now, I want to talk about Abcam. Darren was very nice about Abcam um, just now. I want to talk about Abcam and about how it started. Because it's when you start a company, um, you don't know that it's going to be a billion dollars. And so it's very... It, I, I hope you'll find it interesting to go back to what amounts to uh, the very first email that was sent uh, by Jonathan on the 24th of January 1998, referring to our first meeting the previous evening, in which we batted around the idea of a company that would sell antibodies on the web. Um, and as Darren was saying to me earlier, um, it's, when you read through the email, it's the kind of email that anybody could have sent to anybody else. Right? It just says, he's been chatting to Luke, who he worked with in the lab, and been trying to find some holes in the, in the business plan, couldn't find any. Well, there were plenty of holes in the business plan. We'll find them a bit later on when I go through the stream of emails. So 
that, that's Jonathan's. That's Jonathan's opening line. I won't go through the, the details in it. He talked. He complains about a company called Santa Cruz, which he um, refers to refers to uh, there, and I I refer to as well. My my email back to him, which is pretty well the same, you know, pretty well pinged back straight away, says a number of things which I want to draw your attention to. Number one, Jonathan, don't hang around. Okay. You want to do a business plan that might take you months, which is what he was saying in the previous email. You've got to get this business plan sorted, and you have to have the ideas sorted in a matter of days or weeks, right? And by the way, you then need to iterate, because you are not going to get this thing right first time. So you want to get to something like version two, and I pointed this sometime about April. Well, we were, we were well through that by then. And I then also talked about the... the um, the, uh, the, the uh, rivals here, Santa Cruz, and I talk about the cost of making antibodies. Now, I'm a telecommunications expert. I know nothing about making antibodies, apart from the fact that Jonathan had told me how many aliquots, vials, you could get out of a goat, right? Which is, turns out to be about 500 or so. So I knew roughly that the base cost, because it costs you about £1,500 to inoculate a goat and get some antibodies, that £500 into £1,500, I made that £3. Now, I knew that was an underestimate. It's a bit like bits of kit when you're making with a bomb cost, the bill of materials cost, when you're making a piece of electronics. So I, because I've been a consultant and I knew a little bit about this stuff, I guessed how much it was going to cost, which I reckon, I reckon somewhere of the order of sub $40, right? I can tell you that when we did the analysis for Abcam about six to seven years in, the cost of production was about 23 pounds, which is pretty close to $40, okay? So we got the business model by day two, okay? By the 1st of February, we were hunting around to see where we could make antibodies, because actually having goats around is can be pretty messy and a bit difficult to deal with. Um, and what we did was we discovered some place, a place up in Scotland. And the point about this is that disasters don't announce themselves. This decision that's in this email nearly wrecked the company before it had begun. Because what we did was we outsourced to a bunch of people who produced antibodies with the wrong pH. And as a result, we stocked up on a whole load of stuff and distributed it eventually to our customers and nearly broke the company. You don't know. It's an innocuous email. We found a way of outsourcing. We can do something really creative, right? So just, just remember this point about chance in growing companies. Sell first, make it work later. Um, absolutely. It, um, Herman, Herman talks about uh, Selexa. He, he, he has a very interesting anecdote about Selexa. He said they brought in a new CEO who said, we're going to make this gene sequencing piece of kit in a year. And a large proportion of the staff of Selexa left because they thought he couldn't do it. They were right. He couldn't. But the point was not to actually get to an end product at the end of a year. It was over the course of a year to have engaged with enough customers that at the end of the year they would start buying a piece of kit that didn't work. And then work with the company in order to get somewhere. 
So we were, we were, um, we were up there trying to sell stuff as soon as we possibly can. By the 26th of May, we were already putting systems in place to do that. And another thing um, which I wanted to talk about, I've got about three more of these slides. One of them is managing priorities. If you're going to build a business, just make absolutely sure that you're, you've got your priorities under control. You know what the top ten things are. Jonathan and I sat every Saturday morning for about three hours and we went through what was going on and the most important thing was the to-do list and making sure that it was absolutely tight. And alongside that, provided I can get this button working, did I get that right? Yes. Uh, funding without evolution, yeah, that's right. Um, was, was the ability that we had to raise money fairly early on, not very much, £65,000, but it was enough as a loan, you can't do that these days, to keep the company going without us needing to uh, dilute at low value, which also means that you have a little bit more flexibility. That's a bit more like a, a, a back to being a soft start. Focus, 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 focus. Don't get distracted by other things. Jonathan, Jonathan made a brilliant move about two years after we started. We had these things called custom antibodies, which generated cash, but actually distracted us away from our main business. He stopped it, just absolutely stopped that line of business. This notion of focus is, is, is right in here in this email, because it's a, this is about the notion that you should put a search engine up on the site and search for antibodies for everybody's antibodies, including the ones that Abcam was going to make uh, or provide. And that, that focus, relentless focus on the website, relentless focus on the customer, helped, us, helped enormously. Um, so we're now almost a year in. We're just over a year in. Let's, take, uh, let's, let's jump a long way forward to 2000. So we're now, um, what, two years, two and a bit years after the, the initial conversation. And we have regular reporting. The analytics, as they would be called these days, the KPIs, the, the, deep the big data stuff, was already built into Abcam at a very early stage and enabled us to scale, um, but not in the wrong way. The, there's a, there was another company called Chemdex, uh, another company called SciQuest. These guys um, got lots of VC money. They did not do what we did. They, did not, they charged off thinking they knew what the market was. We were very worried about them because they were offering all sorts of reagents, all sorts of chemicals, all sorts of stuff for people in labs. And as a proposition, it sounds really great. This is the early days of the web, right? Let's supply everything you need in a lab through the website, and we'll supply everything. And we're going to be much better than any poxy little antibody company that's just looking at a narrow, at a narrow segment. In fact, actually concentrating on that narrow segment narrow segment, it was about $800 million, maybe a billion dollars of market worldwide, was actually completely the right thing to do, trying to spread yourself too thinly, grow um, using lots of VC money, was a scale-up that just didn't work. These guys, went, these guys went bust. Guys went bust very quickly. Um, your network is your most valuable asset in growing a business. Um, this email is, a, is the evidence, I mean, it's the, it's the record of a conversation that I had with Herman Hauser on the train. By the way, the train between London and King's Cross is the great place to meet people. 
Um, it's a fantastic place to do business. In this particular case, I bumped into Herman, and I said, come on, Herman, put £100,000 into this company. Right? I write him an email back saying, uh, was, that, was that what you said, Herman? Herman writes an email back saying, yeah, that's all right, put 100000 in. Okay? Going back to my point, my little blue diagram about networks. Um, if you build your networks correctly, if you make sure that you um, have a network of supporters, people who you get to know, you can do this kind of thing. And you can do this kind of thing better in Cambridge, and it's why we had, have 14 $1 billion companies. It's because conversations like that take place. And I think this is the last one. Um, bad luck happens, not everyone survives. As I made a point um, before. So this is the point at which Abcam's going bust. Um, we don't have enough money. Um, and there is only one source of funds that's available, and it's my pension fund. And so my pension fund goes in to propping Abcam up. And I think I put in something like 420,000 pounds, I think, something like that. Okay? Again, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be standing here telling you about how wonderful and easy it is to make a $1 billion company. Just understand the role that chance plays in all of this. So there is one last one. Ah, yeah, very important. This is from 2003. So by this point, we're now thinking about strategy. We're five years into the company. The company is beginning to grow. It's beginning to generate profit. It's beginning to look like it's, uh, it might actually be going somewhere. It's taken quite a long time, five years. A uh, lot, lot longer than Darren's managed with Horizon. But at this point, what you really need to do is think how the, future is, how the future is going to develop, what's going to happen. And what we did was we looked at ideas for what the place would look like in five years' time. Shortly after this, I got Jonathan to write an article for the FT from 10 years in the future where he was being interviewed about why Abcam had been so successful. That kind of thinking forward about where the company might be Think five years into the future. Think ten years into the future. What are the things that you wish you'd done now that would enable you to get five or ten years' time into something that's really quite major? And that's, um, that, that, was a, that was a series of things that he'd done with the management team. The bit that's blocked out is the offer that we'd had from a company where he goes at the bottom, hmm, what do you think? Well, the answer was, no, we're not going to sell, but that's, uh, that's another matter. So I've given you... <coughs> a walkthrough of how a billion-dollar company was built. Billion-dollar company was built with a great idea, moving quickly, having focus, making sure you're measuring what was going on, envisaging the future, and, and magically getting across a couple of things that could have easily killed the whole thing. It's a mixture of all of that. Now, let me, let me go back into slightly more um, orthodox mode in the 15 minutes or so that I've got left um, and just talk about what investors want and, and interpret that list based on what I've just told you. Firstly, you've got a working product and a great track record. If you, if you want to go and get investment, you actually want to demonstrate that you've got a track record, if you can, but better, you've got a working product. 
even better, you've started to sell something to somebody. And I, right at the end, I'll talk about that as a, real, as a lesson for a real company. No one else has it. There's a crying need for it. Well, I suppose Abcam, nobody else was really selling on the web. And really, scientists sitting in labs wanted to buy things off the web. But most importantly, and what we didn't quite realize at the time, was that the amount of information that you can put on the web far exceeds anything that you could put into a paper catalog. And as a result, we were solving a major problem for scientists. A scientist does not want to buy an antibody that doesn't work. So more information, the more data you can provide, the lower the risk, the more likely they are to buy your product. Market is enormous. In 10 years, the company will be huge. Well, I just told you that the market for antibodies somewhere somewhere towards a billion, $800 million. So we have a, a big market to grow into. The proposition is a platform with IP protection. Well, there's little IP protection, actually, in antibody production. But it is a platform. It enables people to do things with it. Like Raspberry Pi enables people to do things that previously they would otherwise be unable to do. And that, that way of fitting into something that can then be magnified further downstream is very important. The competitors are manageable. Well, they were manageable as far as we were concerned because they didn't understand the web. We had easy access to customers. We had the web available to us. There was a great team. Jonathan is a fabulous CEO. We had clear milestones to be able to actually grow the system. And validation due diligence, well, we knew it would work. One of the great things about Abcam, and indeed the companies which have really been successful, is that they've had great investors. Now, just there's a class of investors called angels, of which I'm one. There's a class of investors called venture capitalists, of which I'm not one. And if you want to know my thoughts on this, that in fact uh, somebody who uh, has been through this system, uh, Gonzalo wrote a, a thing for Forbes magazine, uh, based on an interview with me, which is entitled, Not All VCs Are Evil. Uh, venture capitalists um, have their own way of thinking about businesses. Venture capitalists turned down Abcam as an investment um, and wanted to replace, in, in any case, if the ones that wanted to invest were uh, wanted to replace Jonathan. Neither of those two things really, really works. Um, You've got to think about your investors very carefully and make sure, as Shai was saying before, that they are people who add value. One of the great things about Cambridge is there are a large number of people like Jonathan or Herman or Andy Richards or other people around who can add very significant value. Um, and you've got to think about what your product is. Is it aspirin? Is it really solving a problem? Or is it chocolate? Is it just something that's rather nice? Now, Hotel Chocolat have given presentations here, and they may built a very, very successful business on chocolate. That's fine. But most of the stuff that, that I deal with, and most of the stuff that billion-dollar companies um, deal with, actually turn out to be more like aspirin than they do like chocolate. With the I mean, Facebook maybe is a chocolate thing, but Google is certainly aspirin. Platforms. This is so important, I'm, I'm going to just pause for a second and give you a nice picture. If your product or whatever it is that you're providing can be used by many people and then used for a different purpose, altered, changed, put into a different distribution channel, it magnifies, multiplies, amplifies everything that you can do. You cannot possibly 
reach to every person on the planet who wants to buy something derived from your product. If you can reach the people who can reach those people, then, you're, you, then you will be successful. Build something that other people can then build on. And I've got to give an advert for, my, uh, for our restaurant. Um, process, process, process. One of the things about Abcam was a fanatical obsession with process. One of, the, one of the things we did, I try to remember the date for this, but it must have been about 2003, when we were doing this, this thing about how, how the future would look. And we, we did a, a, a very simple model of exponential growth. And exponential growth is a real killer. Because although you have, you might have, I don't know, we were growing 60, 70, 80% a year, you do that for any length of time, and pretty well you've used up all the resources in the solar system. For us, it, it was fridges. Um, if we didn't change what we were doing, within five years, most of the science part would start to be covered with our fridges. Maybe five years is a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly within seven. And the electricity consumption would have been absolutely enormous. So we started a program to build robot fridges. And we started to integrate that into the entire system of ordering so that within three years of, of envisaging the future, we had robot fridges um, deployed, and we could watch somebody ordering an antibody all the way through to the system to the point which the robot fridge then delivered the antibody ready for packing. Now, process, 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 scaling up, thinking, how do I now invest so that in a year's time, the, the next thing that I produce is going to cost less. It's going to take less time. It's going to be less complicated. It's very important. Getting the processes under control, whether they be in project management or all the way flow through for delivery, really absolutely key. You also need to build your teams carefully. Um, in software, it's about 30 to 1. So a good software engineer, good coder, is 30 times more productive than the worst. It's not quite as big as that in the rest of business, but it's not far off. You want to get the, absolutely the best. You've got to make sure you trust everybody. Um, Jonathan and I spent every, every Saturday morning working together. You've got to make sure that you're absolutely candid. Don't pull any punches. And you have to be clear about your expectations. Make sure you understand what is expected of you and the other person understands what you expect. Okay? Very simple rules. But if you go back over, you listen to any of the great American CEOs talking about growing their companies, almost invariably these four points will come up in some guise or another. Where great ideas fail is... Um, where you have a cunning plan. There are no cunning plans. There is no magic thing that is going to get you from point A, where you're in the mud, to point B, where everything is wonderful and the sun is shining. There are, of course, plan strategic plans that will do that for you, but they won't do it with something that involves Blackadder and uh, Baldrick. And it's just, a, it's, 
interesting, just as a little personal note, to note that Jonathan's dog was named Baldrick. So, um, the chasm. This didn't apply quite so much with Abcam, but it's very important for most technology businesses. See, the market is, is, is uh, broken up into those kind of that red bit over there and that orange bit over there. These, these, these red bit guys will buy almost anything because they're really excited by it. These orange guys will look over their shoulders and see the red, guy, red bit guys doing it, have seen you've developed a product that almost works and they're still they're happy to buy it because it will solve a problem for them. Over here, the green guys are saying, well, actually, I don't want to buy your product unless you demonstrate that it really works and fits in with the system. Dark blue guys over here say, well, the green guys have done it. We better do it. And the purple guys have been saying all along, it'll never work. And finally, they will buy your product. Between orange and green is a chasm. It would have been yellow, I suppose, but it's gone. It's not there. Getting across that chasm from having a, a product that works just about to has, having something that's embedded in somebody else's process or system or business takes a huge amount of effort. And crossing that chasm is the big thing. That is the thing that distinguishes the 10 million pound company from the 100 million pound company. And that distinguishes the billion from the 100 million. I'm, I'm nearly at the end. You know, six minutes to go. I might do it in slightly less. I just wanted to point out something. That you sit in Europe or the United States or in China um, and you think about the world very differently. And I thought I'd just do one map that would try and unify the whole thing. And this is GDP density per square kilometer. It tells you where the world markets really are. And when you see GDP density per square kilometer, you can see that China, up here, particularly around Shanghai, Europe, and the United States, over here and a little bit on the west coast, uh, look down here in Indonesia, quite amazing. Here's down on the, uh, the west coast of Australia, down in South Africa. Little pockets there, but the big areas are the, the deep reds. Right? Those are where your world markets are. That's where you need to be thinking. And it's, it's interesting to note that over the last five years or so, whereas five years ago I was thinking about companies generally went across from here over to here, actually the thing that's dragging most of the companies I'm involved in at the moment is from here over to here. And I'll talk about one of them in a second. So think about where your world markets are and think about where, where you need to think about your presence. Okay. So this is the point at which um, I, if I were Greek, I'd be very nervous. Actually, I'm still very nervous about saying this because um, I'm about to make a forecast. And the one thing that's absolutely guaranteed to fail is a forecast. But I'll stick my neck out anyway. This unprepossessing uh, piece of kit is from Cambridge Com Q 
Communication Systems Limited, or CCSL. Let me tell you about the history of this company, and I'm going to put it into the context of what I've talked about so far. So there are a couple of guys who uh, were at the Olivetti Oracle Research Labs. So this was the thing that was the intermediary that, uh, that, came, out of, that came out of ACORN. They worked at Adaptive Broadband, which spun out a broadband company. Then went to Cambridge Broadband Networks and helped grow that. They were uh, very major uh, guys behind it. And then um, they left Cambridge Broadband and one of them came and worked for another company that I've got, um, uh, CRFS, which does spectrum monitoring, which it itself is doing pretty well. We were in the top 50 fastest growing companies in the UK last year. Um, and they came to me with an idea, which is represented by this box. And the, the idea is, is very simple. It's a box, as you can see, which is roughly about this size, something like that, which you can plug onto a lamppost, as you can see it's strapped on there. And if you've got another one of those boxes about 100 metres or 200 metres down the road, this box will say, hey, I can see another box, and the other box will say, hey, I can see you, and they'll connect. And you can string them together as a daisy chain, or you can have a hub and spoke if you want, and they'll all chat to each other, and the total capacity for that network is, well, at the moment it's about 900 megabits a second, but we can get that to 1.2 gigs. Why is that important? Well, the capacity of the radio spectrum is finite, in the sense that if I've got a hertz here, um, I might be able to reuse it, um, but there's great pressure on the radio spectrum. So what you want to do is to be able to actually reuse it, not I want to use it in here, and then I want to be able to use the same radio fre frequency, um, say, I don't know, let's say 500 meters away, so that I've got the whole of my band, which is available to the mobile phone, for the mobile phone, available here, and then without interference, because, I can, I, because the power is very low, I can reuse it, let's say, half a kilometre away, and then another half a kilometre away. So I actually multiply up how much spectrum I've got available by reusing it in di different geographical zones. The point is, though, that if I've got to get an optical fibre to one of these things, it's very expensive. So instead of having one optical fiber to every one of these little cells that's now covering this room and something maybe 100 meters away and another one 200 meters away, instead of having one optical fiber for each of those, which is very expensive, I can share that optical fiber because I've got 12 of these strung together. And they're much cheaper than an optical fiber. And then on the end of it, I can hang Wi-Fi and I can hang mobile phone access. We've now trialled in Beijing, trialled in another province in China, we've trialled in um, the United States. Europe is some way behind on dealing with this. Um, you can ask me, ask me back in about a year's time as to how many we've sold. Um, we have an agreement with a very large manufacturer uh, based in China and Taiwan, beginning with the letter F that you might be able to guess. Um, uh, I, I cannot tell you the details of it, but I suspect that this, in about two years' time, maybe three, will be another billion-dollar company. And the reason 
The reason is that these guys went very, very carefully and slowly by doing consultancy work, working out exactly what it was that the customer wanted. They'd spent years working in research and then two companies before that, before they came to this idea. They validated it. They went off to India, they went off to Malaysia. They checked out with consultancy work exactly how this thing would operate, what the price points needed to be, and then, because they're genius engineers, they designed exactly what it was that the customer wanted. It's a brilliant example of exactly how you can lay the foundations for building a billion-dollar company. Um, what about the future? Well, it's a, race. it's a race between CCSL and Darren at the moment as to who does the next billion in Cambridge. Um, there, there are probably some others. I suspect that Cambridge will generate um, many billion-dollar companies um, over the next five or ten years. Um, I think that, the, the, as Darren said, it's one of these great moments in history where everything is just coming together. It is a lot easier, a lot, more, a lot simpler to build companies here because of the network of mentors, because of the network of finance, because of the um, resources that you've got available, and, and because... As Herman points out, when people are coming back now to coming with new ideas, they're not just doing it for the first time. You guys may want to do it for the first time. You may want to have a go at this. Um, your chances, and I'm going to tell you this absolutely straight, are low. Okay? Remember that toy, uh, tossing the coin that I did earlier. It's not to say you shouldn't try. If you're going to do, I mean, I did it. I, I, I stepped out effectively, did a couple of years after my PhD, and then started my first company. Um, so I, I wouldn't dissuade anybody from doing it if that's what you want to do. But if you can find people who can help you to do that, to mentor you, build your networks so that you can do it, you stand a much better chance. Cambridge has twice as many startups per head of any other city in the UK and at least five times more startups per head than Oxford. <laughs> the, reason, the reason is the network. The reason is the network. So use the network really intelligently. Build your friendships, teams, work with other people so that you can lay the foundations. Things will happen fast, as I indicated with Abcam. You've got to go really quite quickly. But at the same time, that's not an excuse for a headlong rush fueled by lots of money. You need to be very careful and think how in hurrying you're going to take your time to grow the next billion-dollar business. Thank you very much. <laughs>